We are in part 20 of our Revelation series, and I entitled today's message, The War Must Go On. This is an almost identical theme as last week. Uh, I couldn't teach it all last week, so I broke it into two pieces, and we are going to be carrying on the exact same theme of spiritual warfare this week. We'll be talking a little bit more in depth, understanding a little bit more why and how about spiritual warfare. So... I would love to know, now that all of you have had a Bible, well, almost, we got a couple more here in the corner, we got our Bible team over there, um, I'm going to have you raise your hands in a second, it's really going to screw up this fo- these folks over here, so that's not going to work, as soon as we get some Bibles over there. All right, now then, what I need you to do is, real quick, show of hands, have you ever been involved, to whatever degree, have you ever been involved in spiritual warfare, raise your hand. All right. Now, that's the vast majority of you. The rest of you, let me suggest this. You have been involved. You just didn't recognize it as so. There are some times that spiritual warfare is overt. I remember back about um, 15 years ago. I was trying to figure that out as I was sitting in the back how long ago it was. It was when I was leading a Bible study. Kind of not tied to a church, is kind of an independent thing. I was leading it with Susie, who would later become my wife. We were running this Bible study out of her um, condo. It was kind of a duplex, real tiny place. And I would preach exactly the same way as I do now. And we had uh, a whole gathering of different friends, and they would invite people. Well, there was a young man that came into our group and had a real heart for him. He's a really nice guy. He seemed very, very troubled. And... I, I noticed something right off the back. He had some very, very overt self-mutilation demonic symbols in his body, right? He had harmed himself to design these symbols into his body. And I knew that right off the bat, and I thought, well, this, is, this, this poor guy's been through a lot. So I would talk to him and minister to him. Well, one time I started to preach, and we were getting going. And he just started shaking. He just started falling apart. And so we thought, well, it's a pretty small room, so we're going to go ahead and let's move him into one of the back bedrooms and we can pray for him and take care of him, let him mellow out back there. We didn't know if it was a a drug reaction. We didn't know what it was, but we decided to try to take care of him. So we moved him on back and I had to come back out and preach. And I had a buddy with me at the time. His name was Brett McBay. And... I said, Brett, hey, I got to go back out and teach. Can you watch over him while I'm out there? And then after I get done preaching, I'll come back and we can pray over him and take care of him. We started getting this real feeling that it was demonic. Now, I had been around a different uh, different times of demonic. I've been uh, experienced quite a bit of that stuff. And so I thought I'm starting to get the groove. I think this is what's going on. Well, I left Brett back there and I headed back on out to teach to the group and When I got back, Brett looked very concerned (laughs) and he said, um, we, we began to pray over this guy and every time we would pray over him, things kept getting worse and he kept getting really upset and it was just quite the demonic battle. But it was interesting after he left and he left much more peacefully, I was talking to Brett and he said, man, that was, that really threw me for a loop. And I said, I go, what happened? And he goes, well, when you took off, I just, I wasn't touching him. I wasn't near him. He goes, but I was praying over him. He was laying over there on the floor. I was sitting on the bed and I started praying for him 
in my mind. And the minute I said Jesus, he opened his eyes, looked at me and said, don't ever use that name. And he said, I didn't say it out loud. He said, it just scared me. Now, is spiritual warfare always that overt? No. No, I would say 99% of the time, it's certainly not. Those are few and far between, unless you go looking for some of that stuff. Now, in Jesus' ministry, that kind of stuff came out all the time. I mean, when you have the Son of God in your midst, and all of a sudden you're coming in contact with a demonic, yeah, that kind of stuff kind of fires out. It'll fire out in church, and I'm not saying that it won't fire out here at some point. Obviously, Jesus Christ is here. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is operating, so there's going to be some agitation. But most of the time, it's very subtle. You wouldn't even know what's going on. And it only makes sense, right? Let's turn the tables. Let's say you are Satan and you're trying to take down other believers. Why in the world would you reveal yourself really blatantly and scare the living daylights out of everybody? There's just no point in that. Then everybody's up in arms. Everybody's praying against you. Everybody's got, you know, their shields up. No, 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 no. The way to normally do it is to completely be subtle and move around under the current and not let anybody know about it. You suggest some things, let them make it worse. You begin to move here and here and then start attacking here and then hit them in their weakness so they have no idea that it's you. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can do it. If I'm a human being and I can think of subtle ways to take you down, how much more so would Satan, who's been alive for how long? Clearly, he's more cunning. He's sharper. He's bigger he's stronger than we are he's got everything on us except for we have an enormous bodyguard who's much larger than he is but make no mistake he's smart we just aren't to be unaware of how he operates he has an mo that you can track he has a modus operandi of subtlety and I would suggest to you that as you go about throughout your day, periodically, demonic forces are engaging with you and they're trying to mess with you. And people go, oh, that's not true. I've seen too much to not believe. Well, we carry on this concept of spiritual warfare throughout this whole passage, we're learning about why Satan is clashing with God and there's this war in heaven and we've been learning all this stuff and why there's a setup of the Antichrist and the false prophet and we're going to be learning about all that in coming weeks. And we need to understand something very clearly that the Bible is about to lay out for us. We have victory in Jesus Christ. We must lock that in our minds. We must not move from that place. As a matter of fact, as much as we see that we can take territory with God and demolish strongholds and uh, break down the gates of hell, although those are all true and God is advancing his army, a lot of the spiritual warfare passages in the Bible are about standing strong. It's not about demon hunting. It's not about running around and just trying to be crazy and nuts and weird. A lot of it is about not giving him an inch, not giving any ground, staying. When God takes territory, you hold it. Do not move. We get things like a shield, a helmet, a breastplate of righteousness, faith, tr belt of truth. You know what I'm talking about? We get all this armor of God to be able to withstand these types of attacks. We only have one offensive weapon. 
it is not only, well, I shouldn't say only one. We have two, but one comes from within, and that is prayer. Prayer is an incredible offensive tool. However, the only offensive tool externally is the Word of God. That is the sword of the Spirit, yeah? Well, are we utilizing it? Are we operating properly with it? That I do not know. You would have to ask yourself that question. But I do know that in general, we don't seem to understand our victory or hang into our victory or explain our victory to the enemy. But we must realize that we do have it. We do have it in Jesus. He did something extraordinary on the cross. He disarmed the evil powers. Even though he's always had control, he went in and personally upset the apple cart. He has bound the strong man that we might be able to move forward. And Jesus Christ has accomplished a dramatic amount that we might be free. So let's lock one thing into our minds before we begin. It's a fill in the blank in front of you on your sheet. It is this. Spiritual warfare is founded and grounded in Christ alone. Spiritual warfare is founded and grounded in Christ alone. It does not have to do with whether or not you're a perfect person. That's not going to happen. It does not have to do with you being super spiritual. It does not have to do with you having some magic code. It does not have anything to do with you doing some type of prayer mantra. It does not have anything to do with you being able to do super fancy spiritual stuff. Your victory is founded in Christ alone. Who he is and what he has done. As a child of God, there is certain protection there is certain power and we must know what that is now as we dive into the word of god we need to remember where we've come from john the apostle is getting all these visions from god kind of explaining why the world is the way it is and last week he began to go into the arena of this spiritual war so john saw the first two of seven visions that he's about to see that kind of reveal main characters in the cosmic drama, right? So he ends up seeing this woman shows up in this vision. Now, it's not a real woman. It's a woman that represents something. She has 12 stars. She's, her feet are on the moon. There's all kinds of... She's shining like the sun. He sees this woman. She is representative of who? Israel. She is pregnant and about to give birth to a male child who we know to be the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. Then his second vision is that an enormous red dragon shows up, which we know to be Satan. Satan sweeps down and waits for that child to be born, that he might devour the child immediately. We talked about that scenario when Jesus Christ, uh, Herod tried to kill all the baby boys to try to shut them down. It says the child was snatched up, up into heaven. We know Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the father in victory. Well, that drama's not done. When you don't get to attack the guy you're trying to attack, you've got to kill something he loves. So the war goes on. That is where we pick up the story today. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10? It's page 873, and the Bible's handed to you. Revelation 12, 10. If you could turn with me, what we're going to do is just kind of read through. We're going 1210 to the end of the chapter. Not a huge passage, but I can make anything go long. Praise the Lord. (laughs) 
We're going to read verse 10. I'm going to read through this passage and we'll go back and tear it apart. John said this, Revelation 12:10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for the victory we have. I pray right now, Lord, that we would understand a little bit more about how Satan works, that we might be able to be obedient to you and defeat him at every opportunity. That Lord, I believe that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. I believe that you have equipped us 100%. And I believe, Lord, that if you have set us free, we will be free indeed. However, Lord, we seem to give over so much territory to the demonic. We seem to kind of cave in and make everything worse on ourselves and we don't seem to understand what is at stake i just pray right now lord that in this book of revelation that our eyes would be opened and things would be revealed may you be glorified in this service in our lives as we leave in jesus name amen John said, then I heard a loud voice say, and he gives a little phrase. Who's this voice? Don't know. Why do I not know? Well, because it doesn't seem to fit anybody real well. Doesn't seem to fit God real well. Doesn't seem to fit angels real well. So who could it be? Could it be the elders? Perhaps. That would probably be the only likely crew that would fit. Why? Look at what he says or they say. Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God. So it doesn't seem to be God. And the authority of his Christ. So it doesn't seem to be Christ. For the accuser of our brothers. Never in scripture do angels ever call human beings their brothers. So it's not angelic. Who accuses them before our God day and night. He has been hurled down. So who is this voice speaking I have no idea. Could very well be one of the elders because they are indeed saints. And so you would go, all right, that kind of fits. What is their statement? Now have come. And it's almost in this present tense, like, and here it is. It's all done. But here we are 2000 years later and we're still watching this stuff happen. We don't like that in the Western world. We do not like messy. 
We like clean, organized, put it in a row for us. Keep it in its category. We do it with everything, even stereotyping, right? In the East, they're much more comfortable with open ends. They're much more comfortable with beauty and poetry and things that suggest concepts. We don't like that. Well, what has just been said? Now have come the salvation. Now Christ is ruling. And you go, well, come on, kind of. Not really. Do you understand that we kind of use this phraseology all the time without knowing it? We will say things like victory, right? Well, it means that here comes the cavalry. Here comes all the guys we know in a sweeping torrent will take out the enemy and we go victory. Yes, almost as if it was done. It's not done, but you can see it coming. Or you see where it's absolute sure victory, but you still have to calm everything down and win and finish the wars. We speak victory before it happens too. The Bible does that a lot. It will say things in the present tense because they are so sure. It's 100% locked down. Why? Because God said so. And whatever God says will be. Now have come... The salvation, you go, well, am I saved or not saved? Well, I'm here, so you're safe. Yeah, but I'm still living here and I'm still in pain, so have you saved me or not? I'm in the process of saving you. Do you get that? I am in the process of sweeping down, destroying your enemy, and taking you to be with me. So yes, I'm in the process of saving you. You are saved for all practical purposes because I showed up. Well, I don't feel saved. Well, then you need to correct your eyesight because you need to see that I am victorious all the way around you. I will save you. Oh, you're going to save me. I'm saving. Do you understand where that goes? You start getting frustrated because we always want to pinpoint it down. Tell me exactly what's going on. When? How's it happening? What about right now? And the whole point was relax. I have it covered. It says now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God. And the authority of his Christ, his Messiah, his anointed one. For the accuser of our brothers, and what does Satan mean by definition? Accuser. That's actually what Satan means. It's not really necessarily a, a name. It's more a descriptor, right? So the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Wait a second. He accuses who? He accuses our brothers, believers. He's accusing them in heaven day and night. Then it says he was hurled down. My big problem with all this is I get stuck on timelines and I want to know when. When was he hurled down? Was he hurled down originally when he was cast out of heaven to some degree? And you go, no, that was not true. Because we read in Job and Zechariah that he still has access to heaven to accuse the brothers. Okay, so it's not then. Is it at the cross when he disarmed all those powers, when Jesus triumphed over evil and took the keys to death and hell? Is that when it happened? Perhaps. Or it's a future time. If it is a future time, which seems to be the context here then Satan still has access to do part-time on earth, part-time in heaven, and accusing the saints. What would that look like? Well, it would look a lot like, perhaps, 
the Zechariah incident. Remember last week, I kind of tried to describe it a bit more like a courtroom scene where you have Satan standing there and he's been allowed to be the prosecuting attorney. And I told you he has plenty of stuff to work with, right? As he looks into your life and says, look at how they treat you, God. After everything you have done to them, they don't even care. This whole thing about spending time with you, not interested. They're doing their own thing. They're more focused on building their kingdom. They're more interested in work than they're interested in you. So look at them. Why would you die for such a lousy race? Perhaps it's grand accusations like that. Perhaps it is accusations from within that from a spiritual dimension, he can just keep firing thoughts into your head and just keep messing with you. Is that what it means? What we know is that he will consistently accuse. Is he right? Yes and no. Our standing as children of God if we adhere to Jesus Christ, is clean, 100% pure in the eyes of God. Now, practically, walking around, we're messing up a lot. And yes, he is absolutely right in accusation. But that's not the end of the story. And in order to encourage us, the same author that wrote Revelation also wrote three other letters and a gospel. So he wrote the gospel of John. He wrote Revelation, the book, and then he wrote three small letters. And we now know as first, second and third John. Would you turn with me? Keep your finger in Revelation. Turn with me to first John. It's only a couple books back. It's towards the end of your Bible. But it is page 862, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, page 862, and the Bible's handed to you. It's almost as if he didn't know if we were going to fully understand, although it's been clarified that Satan is a heavenly accuser. And you would go, why does God allow that? Because we're all pretty clear that once God wants Satan gone, Satan's gone, yeah? This is not a tough fight. Do we all realize that God allows this whole drama to unfold so that we might learn lessons along the way, right? Is it possible that as Satan accuses and people are listening to this in heaven, the great cloud of witnesses, whether they're angels or saints, they're listening to our accusations and then getting to hear Jesus' response, they bring glory to him. Is that possible? Because certainly he is our defense. First John chapter 1, verse 5 says this. This is the message, John said. We have heard from him, meaning God, and we declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from what? All sin. Now, if we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, meaning that's my goal. I have a goal that you would eradicate overt sin in your life. Get it out. Root it out. Don't just let it sit there. 
Get it out. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin and that will happen, we have one who speaks to the father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anybody obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So I'm reading this and I'm beginning to picture this heavenly accusation of Satan this heavenly defense of Jesus Christ. And it gave me new insight into a well-known passage in Romans that we'll read here in a moment. But folks that don't grasp how powerful Christ is, they may get a little nervous. If Satan's accusing you in front of everybody and he has good info And he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what God desires. He knows where you have failed. There's got to be some folks that get a little nervous that maybe at some point he's going to get it through to Jesus that he should have never died for him. Maybe Satan's going to win this argument. What if what is what is going to happen if suddenly he starts winning over heaven and they all go, you know what? They are garbage. I don't love them anymore. It's almost as if Paul assumed that someone would take it that far, that he wrote something that has now become very, very famous in the church. It's Romans chapter 8. Would you turn there with me? Romans chapter 8, verse 31, page 801. The Bible's handed to you. Romans. You're going to go back to the left still. Go up towards the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. There you are. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, page 801. I used to read this passage only thinking of Satan tempting. I never read this passage thinking of Satan accusing. But lest we ever fear that God will somehow be convinced that we're worthless, we have this passage to go to. What then shall we say in response to this, Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that ultimately condemns, meaning the judge that is Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. So who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But then read verse 38 afresh. For I am convinced, Paul said, That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
Satan will not win that argument. Satan will not convince Christ of anything else. The love that Jesus Christ has for his children whom he has died for is secure. It is safe. No matter what Satan will bring up, Jesus Christ died willingly and he would do it again. Because of his love for us. No matter what he says, it's not going to change. We go back to the passage in Revelation. It says... The accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Now that, that means that he is no longer having access to heaven. He can no longer accuse or try to tear down the church up there. So now he's going to set up an earthly kingdom to get that done. We will find out about the beast and false prophet next week. Those are some of his primary characters to get it done. However, back in the passage, verse 11, how did he fall out of heaven? The first word... seems weird because you immediately if you're like me go to this idea that well jesus christ kicked him out that's just how it works well then why does it say the word they you see the next line they overcame him who in the world are they they what the trinity no not in this context although it involves them i believe it's speaking of the saints the saints. Wait, who are the saints? Us. Wait a second. The church overcame Satan. What are you talking about? They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. That is Jesus Christ. The cleansing blood on the cross for our sins. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. How do you overcome Satan by the blood of the lamb when it's not your blood? By faith. By believing that what he has done is true. By putting your whole heart into Jesus. By faith, you lock in with Christ. That makes you clean. That defeats Satan immediately. And in your standing before God, you're 100% pure. But it doesn't stop there. There is also a practical warfare. So what's the next phrase? They overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and by the word of their testimony. What does that mean? It means they defeated him practically along the way by being obedient to the word of God. You go, obedience isn't spiritual warfare. Are you sure? Because I think it is. The kingdom of God is being run by God via the angels and the church. You go, why does he do it that way? Here's my answer. I don't know. <laughs> Seems rather inefficient to me. But it's how he does it. Do you understand that he, when he wants to get something down on earth, he will call his kids and go, come here for a second. Okay, you see that guy over there? I want you to take this rock. I want you to throw it at his head. Well, why don't you just throw it? Well, well you, don't, you don't want to play today? Well, yeah. All right, throw the rock. Okay. Whack! Ow! Right? Who did it? Well, ultimately, God stormed the territory, but he did it via you and I. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that sometimes we slip into fatalism, and we've got to knock it off. What's fatalism? 
Oh, if God's going to do what he's going to do, it doesn't really matter. I mean, really, am I going to pray? Oh, okay, big deal. So I pray about it. It's not like God's not going to get it accomplished. Does it matter? Listen, I know you buy into fatalism. Why? Because no one shows up to the prayer meetings. Right? Okay, so we do not believe it ultimately matters. We believe that it's a neat little thing to do and it makes you a good Christian. And it sounds super spiritual. And yes, there might be a little bit of a suggestion where you kind of just take out a little IOU and write it out to God and go, when you got time and you throw it up to him. Is it possible that God can orchestrate a scenario where he goes, I want to get something done. You ready to go? All right, let's pray it. Let's go. Oh, I'll move. I'll do all the power you want. I want you involved. Come here for a second. Pray over it. What's it going to matter? Because I'm waiting for you. Come on. Let's do this. All right, watch, because you're going to be really excited and realize I'm real and you're going to be all into it. Let's do this. I'm hinging it on your prayer. You're ready to go. All right, pray it. Bam, something happens. Oh, wow, it's all me. No, it's not all you. Stop it. It's all God. But he let you play. Right? He let you play. You're involved in it. And it matters. It matters what you do. It matters when you're obedient. Why? Because Satan is going to knock you down largely through disobedience. He will say, you need to do the shortcut, as we talked about last week. You need to succumb to this temptation. When you say no, that's spiritual warfare. Obedience is spiritual warfare. You are advancing the kingdom. Why? Because God has his whole army moving forward and pressing into Satan's territory. He's giving the directions. When you say yes to the directions, you're walking the right direction. And you're pushing Satan's army back. That's how spiritual warfare works. We do it by obedience and by faith. Those are two things that Satan does not operate in. Do you understand that? He does not operate in faith. And he does not operate in obedience. We do. When Satan hits you, hit back. Well, how do I do that? He gets you to succumb to a temptation. Press and make a decision and a will to be obedient. Immediately and unequivocally. Not only next time, but immediately. That you would operate now, move forward in obedience and begin to go, you knock me down once, watch this. I will stand up and that's the first goal. When Satan knocks you down, get up. Don't lay down. Don't sit there and, oh, I'm a horrible person. We all know that. Get over it. Yeah, you're a horrible person. So am I. Big deal. Get up. Get up and start walking again and begin to brush it off confess it to the Lord, let him begin to sort things out with you and determine to be obedient. As you get up and move forward, then all of a sudden, as you're being more obedient and you're fired up to do so, it's a little embarrassing to Satan that he knocked you down in the first place. Because now you've advanced far more territory than you would have if he would have left you alone. Does that make sense? This is spiritual warfare. Christ is advancing his kingdom because when we do what he wants, it becomes here on earth as it is in. That's what we pray. Yeah. We move forward. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
They, the martyrs, the saints, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. In other words, they said, Jesus Christ is so important to me, Satan. I don't care what you do to me. Go for it. I love Jesus and he's all mine and I'm all his. That's it. Bottom line. You want to kill me? Go for it. I'll put a big exclamation point. You kill me? It's going to tell the whole world he's that important. What are you going to do? Help my witness? Go ahead. Shut me down. Kill me. Because then everybody knows who Jesus is. Do you understand that advancement? They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. What? The angels, the dead saints, all of them. Rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea. That's a way of saying all of mankind. Because the devil has gone down to you. That means permanently. Until he is thrown into the lake of fire until he's bound into the abyss. In other words, now he's down, locked out, out of heaven, and he's going to be on constant terror down here on earth because there's no more access to accuse up in the heavens. He's shut down, put down here, woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. And he is filled with fury. That word for anger in the Greek. Remember I mentioned last week there was two of them. This is the passionate, I'm really ticked off anger. This is the, I'm reacting to a situation anger. That's what he is. He's mad. It says he's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Has Satan no timetables? Oh yeah. He's pretty darn clear, but only in large chunks, kind of like us. Remember when the disciples said, so Jesus, when are you going to return? He said, that's the father's information. Not interested in knowing that right now. I don't think Satan knows exactly when Christ is coming back, but he knows the same ticker marks that we do and even better. Do they know there will be a time when they be shut down? Yes. How do we know that? Remember, I read you the story of the demon-possessed man that said to Jesus Christ, why are you here, the demon said. Are you here to torture us before the appointed time? Right? They're pretty clear on timetables. When they see this click off and they went, end of the world, Satan kicked out of heaven. He knows, all right, set the clock, go, short. I'm moving as fast as I can because I can no longer tear down from above. I will tear down horizontally. I will set up a kingdom. I will try to kill as many as possible. Yes, he knows that. He's pretty clear on the plan. He's trying to work within it. It says, when the dragon, meaning Satan, saw that he had been hurled to the earth by God via the saints, he pursued the woman. Who's the woman? Israel. When you pursue Israel to attack, what do we call that practically? Anti-Semitism. Everybody heard that phrase? A Semite is a Jew. Anti-Jew is the idea. Anti-Semitism. He has a hatred for the Jewish people. Why? Because they're God's precious children. Because they're the ones through whom the Messiah is going to come. Do you understand that the Jews, even Orthodox Jews, right? We always call Messianic Jews our brothers and sisters, and that seems very easy. Do you understand that Orthodox Jews are our brothers and sisters? They have the same family tree as we do. We branched off. I get that. They're not living for Jesus. I get that. But we come from the same lineage They are our brothers and sisters, and it is our job to stand up for them. It is our job to love on them. Well, they're not living for Christ. 
Does that mean love stops? What are you talking about? There is no room for anti-Semitism in the church. There is no room for this whole Israel's done thing. Forget that. The Bible's very clear. That's not the case. We need to stand up for our Jewish brothers and sisters. And it's going to get even uglier for them as we move forward. It was not that long ago when we saw this in full force. Yeah, Hitler. How demonic was that? How weird. Why would some guy in Europe care so much to eradicate a people group all over the world? Why would he care about that? That seems a little weird, don't you think? And yet he did it with vehement passion. That was demonic. Same exact thing is going to happen again in the end times. We need to be prepared for that. We need to stand up for them. We need to shield them. They have something else in common with us, which is what? Satan hates them too. And when we have a common enemy, and when you do that, you have a tendency to have kind of a brotherhood. Oh, really? Satan hates you too? He hates me. Great. Let's have coffee. (laughs) Right? All right. When Satan saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, that is Jesus Christ. The woman who was given, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert. All right. Remember, this is just a vision. This isn't a real woman. She didn't really get wings. Okay. It's a vision. And why did she get wings? Because in the Old Testament, wings talk about protection. When they're walking through the desert, there's all kinds of references. I covered you like an eagle does over his brood. There was this whole idea of I carried you on the wings of eagles. You'll keep hearing this over and over and over. In the Old Testament, eagle's wings mean supernatural protection or a sweeping up into God's arms. She was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert. Now, we got a couple choices. What are we talking about? Past or future? Some people see this as past. Why? Because when Jerusalem was sacked in AD 70 with that war, Jerusalem, literally, all the Jews had to flee. They had to run to the desert. And you would look at this and you'd go, man, that's a complete fulfillment. The problem is, is that we believe John wrote this, what? After that. Will history repeat itself? When the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple, takes over the temple mount, and completely kicks out the Jews, they have to flee again. It's history over and over and over. They kick them out. They run out into the desert, most likely, literally out into the desert. Where would they go? Well, it says to a place prepared for her. Everyone's got a guess. Do they physically run to this location? Pella, right? Pella is a city, city on the other side of the Jordan River. Do they go to Petra? That's a place where they could defend south of the Dead Sea. Whatever it is, they're likely running into the mountains. Why? Because Daniel says flee to the mountains. Edom, Ammon, Moab, these desert regions. As they flee out of the city, they are physically protected by God. That's going to frustrate Satan, right? It says where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time. That's how many years? Three and a half. Just like we said the last, what, four weeks in a row. Three and a half, three and a half, three and a half. 
It's the back half of the tribulation, the last three and a half years. She's going to be shielded and protected because the Antichrist, halfway through the tribulation, is going to set up his kingdom and begin to persecute. So she is shielded and protected just like they were in the desert. Remember, they were given manna. They ran away from Egypt. You're going to see that all over the place out of the serpent's reach, right? Then it says what? Then in a second attempt from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon spewed out of his mouth. That's weird. Why is he barfing on everybody? Right? Oh, he's a water dragon. Okay, gotcha. Whatever. What does it mean? Well, there's a whole psalm by David talking about Israel being attacked physically called Psalm 124. And the whole thing sounds like this. Just listen to it. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, David said, let the, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Does that not sound exactly like this context? Yes. So no, it's not that there's a real dragon running around throwing up on things. That's not it. The torrent, the river that rages out is an attack. Whatever, it could be armies, could be demonic, could be this, could be that, doesn't matter. There's this attack that rages out of Satan to try to get them once again. But what happens? God intervenes. The earth opens up, swallows the river. Now, could it be a real river? Maybe. Okay, it's really lame to attack someone in the desert with a river. <laughs> bah, I throw water at you. It's, uh, it's just, they could, oh, I'm going to move over here. It doesn't really work the same way. And when the earth opens up, could it be a literal earth opening up? Well, granted, it did happen in the Old Testament. Do you remember? Achan sin. While they're wandering through the desert, bad guy does bad stuff. Whole earth opens up, swallows all the bad guys, and it closes up. So could it happen again? Yeah. Could it be an earthquake? Yeah. Does the earth maybe suggest something? Some writers go, well, the earth a lot of time refers to the Gentiles. Is it possible that the Gentiles rise up and defend Israel? Okay, maybe. All we know is that God supernaturally protects his children. That's what we do know. And no matter what Satan tries to do, he keeps getting frustrated because they keep being protected. It says, then the dragon was enraged at the woman because he's frustrated because she keeps getting protected and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who are those? Right? What? We got a bunch of options. Yeah. Who are they? Well, if you believe that the church was raptured at the beginning, then it can't be the church. It's got to be somebody else. So a couple options are things like converts, new converts. To Christianity, so they're new Christians. Maybe that's the offspring, or maybe it's the Jews worldwide. Since he can't attack national Israel Jews because they're protected, he goes worldwide to exterminate Jews. Is that what it means? If you don't believe that the rapture happened at the beginning of the tribulation, this would likely be the church. After he attacked Israel, his persecution extends out and starts attacking the Christians worldwide. 
Either way, the persecution intensifies. But how are these people described? And I ask, do they describe you? It says her offspring were those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What does that sound like? Faith and obedience. We're right back in the same category. A saint is one that is marked by faith and obedience. Well, what do we do with all this? Spiritual warfare is real. But there are ways to defeat it. A lot of the times when the warfare is very strong, you hide down beside the shield of faith and you pray a lot. Sometimes you feel empowered and strong and bold and you pray through it and against it in advancement. Sometimes you're barely hanging on. But make no mistake, our spiritual warfare is founded and grounded in Jesus Christ alone. But he is victorious. I never want you to leave a message from here thinking that in some way Satan will win. I never want you to believe that in some way that Satan is greater than Christ who is in you. That is not true. But are we doing a good job in spiritual warfare and advancing the kingdom of God? No, I think we're doing lousy. We must do what Jesus asked us to do. Why? Because he knows the way around Satan's traps. He knows how to maneuver. He knows what will shut him down. We obey. We obey the word of God. If you don't know the word of God, there's no way you can know what to do. Right? We live lives that glorify Christ and that embarrasses Satan. And that is one of the most wonderful ways to shine Jesus in this world. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Lord, once again, an incredible message of protection in your word. That no matter where Satan went to attack the woman, she was protected and shielded. Lord, you moved her out into a place in the desert to protect her. When the water spewed out, you opened the earth and she was protected, just like Israel coming out of Egypt. Lord, you had them walk through a wall of water on dry land. You fed them manna from heaven in the middle of the desert. You brought them water out of a rock. Lord, your supernatural provision for your people is extraordinary. That no matter what wiles, no matter what schemes, no matter what fronts Satan brings against us, you are always greater. May you be praised and glorified in our lives, in our faith, and in our obedience as we move forward today. In Jesus' name, amen.